Hello, everybody. Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. <laughs> Classic, man. Never change. Just do it now. Never change. Yes, yes, yes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another super exciting, super special episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast. My name is Charles, and with me, as always, is my friend Dylan. Hey, Charles, can you run that back one more time? The song. <laughs> are you serious? Jam, right? Are you are you are you serious? You want me to run it again? Do you know I? I really think that this podcast should just be a loop of the intro music. And then at the end, we should just play the outro music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the intro music is a banger. The outro music is solid also, man. I, I wouldn't blame it. <laughs> when we found that music, we just heard it and we're like, these are the tracks, you know. I think we found the outro first. We were looking for an intro, right? And we were like, we like the song, but it's not the intro. And then it was like, yo, that's totally the outro. And uh, that's our exciting story. <laughs> yeah. But it was one of those <laughs> things where we heard a bunch of tracks and we very quickly decided that these were the ones we wanted to use. <laughs> we thought it was going to be a longer journey. And that's right. Instead, landed on it pretty quickly. But we've got a, a relatively long journey, I guess, to discuss today, Charles. Maybe. Uh, Journey is the name of the game here. We've got um, our continuation of our Lord of the Rings discussion. We are now on book two, The Two Towers. So very huge moment for any fantasy podcast would be their Lord of the Rings series discussion. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> joining the ranks of every other fantasy podcast out there by <laughs> discussing... The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I mean, how can you not? You, it's you gotta do it. The grandfather of all of these things. Um, I mean, super one of the most influential works for me, for sure. But this is your first time reading the Two Towers, as we all know. Yeah. And uh, do you want to start off with your first impressions, or should I drop this quote that I have prepared for us? Ah, drop the quote. All right, so I wanted to kind of start off our conversation with, um, in the intro of my version of The Two Towers I was reading, it had a really nice short review by C.S. Lewis, who was actually a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien. People might not know, C.S. Lewis was the author of um, The Chronicles of Narnia, the first book being The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So I'm just going to go ahead and get right into his review. Uh no imaginary world has been projected which is at once multifarious and so true to its own inner laws. None so seemingly objective, so disinfected from the taint of an author's merely individual psychology. None so relevant to the actual human situation, yet free from allegory. And what fine shading there is in the variations of style to meet the almost endless diversity of scenes and characters, comic, homely, epic, monstrous or diabolic master review that's interesting it's I a really well drawn... eloquated review <laughs> better word? than what we usually eloquated see eloquated a word is it <laughs> you're the scholarly type you tell me 
<laughs> the I would check Google if it was worth our time. Do you know what? T- tweet at us. Let us know if eloquated is a word. I would say it is eloquent. And I Yeah, I it's not drawn? a word. <laughs> you Googled it? Yes. <laughs> it comes up with did you mean eloquent? <laughs> or Ali quoted A L I. Did you mean Ali quoted? I did not. Oh. Well, either way, we get your point, Charles, which is that it is <laughs> kind of funny though. It's like it's well eloquated. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is why i'm not a writer everybody and c.s lewis is (laughs) or what i was i was drawn to this line so disinfected from the taint of an author's merely individual psychology because i i find myself wanting to push back against that as a a taint like it's tainted i guess when i think of my favorite author would be Joe Abercrombie, and I would say that his individual psychology is what makes those books so unique and yeah. awesome in a way that no other series has been able to capture. So that's I fair. I would say that, like, this is kind of old school. Uh, I don't think these guys would have been ready to read something by Abercrombie fully. Probably not. But. I do, there's a lot I like about that line. I think what he was getting at was like, it wasn't so obviously an author trying to project his own beliefs onto people. Like he, like Tolkien went out of his way to create characters that have different opinions and psychologies, essentially very empathetic, which if you're building a whole world, you, you kind of need that empathy to be like, okay, this character, like, okay, Faramir needs to be able to see things more objectively than, say, Boromir did, or, you know, Sam is very single-minded, and Frodo's compassionate, so it's, like, all these different um, psychologies going on that, um, and that exist beyond just his own biases, which, not an easy thing to do as a, as a human being. For sure, and I see a lot of the value in what Tolkien is able to provide in the Lord of the Rings with just his ability to convey such a fully realized world. And maybe that's part of what C.S. Lewis is getting at here, where the whole, we talked in our last episode about how uh, a lot of authors nowadays think, hey, I'll show them the tip of the iceberg when it comes to my world building and let them assume that there yeah. is a whole lot of iceberg underneath, even if I didn't put in all this work beforehand to actually flesh out what's underneath the tip of the iceberg, which makes sense from right. a pragmatic standpoint. But the idea of being in the Lord of the Rings world while you're reading these books it does there's something you just can't replace by only showing the tip of the iceberg that Tolkien has here and it's amazing to think that it came from just one person like one person's imagination created this whole thing yeah and that's what makes these books stand out through like the test of time and so it makes it so influential is just like how deep the lore of this world goes and how far back all these characters go in their lineages and 
even in their present moment, their families, what they do, where they live. It's like every setting has a huge description and all the settings are different from each other. It's like, oh, you're you're on the steps of Critith Ungle or, oh, you're on the woods to Isengard. And he's able to describe with intense detail what that path looks like versus what those woods look like. I remember there was one point Faramir blindfolds them and it's just a whole page. It's like of a solid paragraph, no breaks describing their walking blindfolded he's like and then they were like started to descend and he could feel the rocks and i was like oh my goodness like how much did this guy visualize in his head before he set to write this down and you know it's that idea of putting like these works of fantasy get life breathed into them when all these details are kind of worked into it where it's not just i came up with this this situation because it's a cool situation it's like no this is like a inevitable long growing journey that we're on that's taken place over thousands of years so it's just that kind of aspect to it that makes it so easy to kind of get lost in and enjoy well charles that's well eloquated for (laughs) sure (laughs) and i I'm wondering, as you're talking about this, I know you're a huge Lord of the Rings enthusiast. Mm-hmm. The This is your third read of the books, right? Yeah. And you've watched those movies countless times. A bunch right? of times, yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering, do you feel like that's something that's missing from modern fantasy when you read more modern works, are you feeling like you'd like to see people putting in more effort into fleshing out the entire iceberg instead of just the tip? That's an interesting question. Um, and uh, it, it brings like, there's that next line in the CS Lewis um, review that says um, like none so relevant to the actual human situation yet free from allegory and what fine shading there is in the variations of style to meet the almost endless diversity of scenes and characters. So I think that's, this idea of like relevant to the human situation but free from allegory to me is what fantasy is and what makes fantasy really good. Um, Tolkien just happened to be a guy who was passionate about settings and history and languages and the things that make for like this longer path. Um, but what I say, like, does does that do I wish there was more of that in modern fantasy? For the most part, what I like about modern fantasy is that it really explores that human situation um, being completely removed from actual, the physical, like literal humanity, like as it exists in real life. For sure. So that's what I really like to see and why I love modern fantasy so much and why reading George was such a... Um, influential moment was this idea of putting a little more of that human conditioning into the story of like hey if a character as noble as so and so would exist in this world and they gave them a noble path that person would just take advantage of it and and kill you or something you know so it's like a very interesting ideas and that's what gets has gotten me excited do you need to have all these things fleshed out to have a good fantasy book i don't think so um, you can tell when there's authors that are passionate about their world building. Like George put a ton of time and effort yeah. into Westeros, so it's it's like he has Definitely. characters going back through all these time. He has maps. He's got you know 
different political parties and families lineages and lineages he's got all of that too i i think i but we don't necessarily need to read about it as so much <laughs> like i like for me like as much as i i love the lord of the rings books um i don't know if they would be my favorite fantasy books of all time they're way up there but a lot of what kind of holds it back for me is that dive into descriptions and languages and things you know a part of what makes someone like Sanderson so fresh is that they tell you what you they, you need to know to get the story moving and it's exciting and there's consideration for entertaining the reader with every word in Sanderson's writing whereas um Tolkien's content to sit for a moment and um go on about a certain place or a certain character for a long period of time so I think all the best fantasy stories are going to have this whole world built in their minds and that's what makes the moments that happen feel so lived in that idea of the human situation it's like you need a a proper setting that allows for those kind of human situations to feel earned and and lived in so in that respect yes but in terms of like and here's the iceberg as you go under the surface and it cascades down in the in this azure blue and it's, it's been here for hundreds of years it's like okay what like i don't need that part of it but you can tell me that it's there and, and it's you know put it into the story that's fair and i was asking you because i thought maybe you'd be more inclined to this viewpoint that we need more world building and stuff than <laughs> necessarily i am i you know i'm very character focused in terms of what kind of books i like to read right and and you are too charles so maybe we're not the best examples of people who would <laughs> die on the hill of world building yeah. like i find <laughs> a in my hill that has stood life, for hundreds like... of years charles yeah. and has <laughs> was site to the great battle of the red hill yeah the... <laughs> yeah i like i always find in my personal life i'm like can we make this shorter how can we save time how can we you know get there in a more efficient way you know i I'm, I'm always have that kind of headspace just in life so when i'm reading books you know it, it really depends it's whatever the author's passionate about but if you know if i was writing a book it would not be anywhere near as descriptive a, a, as tolkien's is and uh, because I'm just not a descriptive guy. But Tolkien well, makes you enjoy reading <laughs> go it. Go on, Mr. Not Descriptive. And, but to- <laughs> yeah, and that's, the, and that's that. <laughs> that's, uh, I'm not very eloquated. Well, you're so. making that point, clearly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's just... Uh, uh, I was going somewhere with that. It, it's just a good author should make you feel passionate about what they're passionate about, right? In Tolkien's case, describing settings and languages and things is what he's really into and i enjoy reading it because i get that passion coming through um same way that i enjoy reading something like king killers chronicles which you know he's got such a unique way of writing and he's so focused on certain parts of we're going back to this idea of the human situation and i'm just all on board with that and i love that for that and i love king killers for those reasons separate from why I like Lord of the Rings. So it's just the author's voice being very strong. In both that's cases. fair, Charles. I think that's huge is the best books seem to come out of when authors write what they want to write. <laughs> yeah. And 
Tolkien was obviously very excited about his world and presenting it to people. And when someone's that excited, it's hard not to get at least a little bit excited too when you're reading it. And I've, I was thinking of, I've heard it said before in multiple places, this idea that basically everything you write, every scene, every interaction, basically every word should in some way serve to advance the plot, advance character development or both (laughs) in a book. And I would say that Lord of the Rings does not, does not necessarily adhere to the, that rule and is pretty far from it when you compare it to something like Sanderson. I would agree with that statement. I, you know, sometimes you flip a page in Lord of the Rings and you just see these super chunky paragraphs, and you're like, "Oh, oh Lord, we're we're in it now." And it's usually not an action scene; it's usually a descriptive <laughs> scene, which is fine. It's what you're reading Lord of the Rings, and you're in this new world, and it's so alive that. It, it's never like a chore, but that's just what the experience of reading Lord of the Rings is like. It's like, does does reading this huge description advance the plot or develop the characters in any way? No, but it sets the tone for Tolkien's whole world, and it makes and it breathes so much life into his world, and and that's what makes those books so popular. Even though things aren't advancing constantly, it's like you know, this is a let's stop and take this in kind of experience for sure and we do get the time to take things in in (laughs) the two towers definitely there there are a few a few scenes or events that (laughs) had that same feeling i brought up around the bombadil stuff in our last episode where i was like "Oh, oh, oh we're still doing this what like, what scenes did you find to be the ants? Oh man, I like the ants, man. <laughs> Treebeard's one of my favorite characters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I right the idea of the ants in some ways is that they live really long, so they take their time with things and. I like their language. They're always like, "Ho hum, don't be so hasty," because they're trees and they're like have lived for thousands of years. It's like, you're talking too fast for me to understand you. It's like, (laughs) I'm a tree, right? Like, I take hundreds of years to grow. So it's like, um, and it's like, oh, what's your word for that? Hill? What a hasty way to say something that's been forming for thousands of years. This word hill, which when I read that, I was like, what a fun perspective that is. And I always liked Treebeard, man. He's so fun. He's like trying to learn about hobbits, and then he's like, <laughs> like they have that whole super long meeting. They're like, "We're decided, you're not orcs." <laughs> it's like, oh god, <laughs> we're gonna be here for quite a while, you know. So the moments like that, I thought were really fun. Yeah, I mean, I don't have complaints or these anti tree beard takes to lay on you, Charles. I think sometimes I can just get a little bit impatient you know i'm not a tree i'm a person i got i got only so much time charles you're so hasty i'm hasty (laughs) yeah i don't know what to say you could perhaps you know uh 
C.S. Lewis might say you're um, adhering too much to your individual psychology. My entire life is about individual <laughs> psychology. <laughs> so I would not be I would not be surprised if I'm falling into being too entrenched in the idea of individual psychology. As that's what I and, study. You know, I that's a huge reason why I never really pushed these books on you over the years. You know, I was never like, dude, don't talk to me until you've read Lord of the Rings. Or I never was like, you have to read Lord of the Rings. I was always like, I like them. I recommend you read them. But you can correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, but I never felt like I pushed them at any moment or said you would never. love these. You know, I never tried to hype them up for you. And a lot of it is for that reason. I was actually relieved a bit from our last episode that you had liked it as much as you did in the last episode. I was like, oh, thank goodness, because a part of me thought you weren't going to get much out of the experience from all the descriptions and the the songs and the poetry and kind of these almost like um i'm trying to come up with the right word for these kinds of characters like treebeard where it's not silly but they're just kind of like whimsical like whatever that word is where they're just like fun characters that aren't necessarily like contemplating <laughs> the human condition or anything like that they're not faced with these like morally ambiguous dilemmas you know it, everything is very much good and evil and the good characters are super good and they're you know eloquent and they're verbose and they're you know they're just they're not that kind of conflict that I know you kind of like to go for and they're not that complex in terms of their psychology which is what I know you're looking for as well I do love a character with some inner turmoil. <laughs> Treebeard is not that character. Not a lot of inner turmoil going on for <laughs> Treebeard. But he did have that moment where he's like, these trees were my friends. <laughs> very... There was that moment. <laughs> he had to decide to go to battle. He's like, oh, hum, I'm getting a little hasty myself. <laughs> <laughs> that does happen. Well, I'll say something that I did really appreciate in the two towers was that we got a lot more Schmeagol or Gollum. I don't, oh, yeah. I don't know what the proper way to refer to him is among actual big. <laughs> it depends on fans. what mood he's in, I guess. The Gollum, yeah. Schmeagol. I'll just call him Gollum. It's a cooler name. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll go Gollum then. I appreciate that we got a lot more time with Gollum because definitely holds up as my favorite character mm. in anything anything I've experienced Lord of the Rings wise. Oh yeah. The Gollum it's, moments really shine in this. I mean, I, I I said there were a few times where I would start to like, oh yeah, like we're still <laughs> doing this. And every time we would get some Gollum scenes and some dialogue with Gollum and him and Sam going back and forth at each other <laughs> yeah. i was way more alert <laughs> I, one of the things i loved about this book was those voices like to read Gollum, like Gollum, it's hard to think that that character was written like in the 50s or even earlier yeah. when tolkien was working really hard on it they they were published in the 50s but it's like that character is so fresh and so individual and so unique and reading him it he just pops off the pages where he's like my precious call him like uh, like i think a huge i think that writing was a huge influence for andy circus who plays Gollum in the movies where it's like 
he did such a fantastic job of bringing that voice onto the screen is how it was written is it's written exactly like he portrays it to me almost it's like that kind of conflicted language where he's constantly like sputtering saying weird things like he goes in and out of being like this kind of manic more Gollum than Schmeagol more Schmeagol than Gollum he's like going back and forth such a fun character to read and that's what I liked about Treebeard also these different voices these voices so far and away from a normal what a normal human being would sound like it's like these totally fresh original takes on like brand new creatures because like elves and dwarves and men they all kind of speak the same but Gollum is speaks in a totally bizarre way it's like really really interesting such a great character what's incredible is that even looking back now there's nothing about Gollum that I feel like has been replicated to the extent where he doesn't hold up as well as he'd like right. to. There's no like about... Gollum trope. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm sure it's been replicated There's many like characters times that and... repeat their names like over and over and stuff and are kind of silly or unhinged in some way. But yeah, yeah Gollum lives in his own. <laughs> He's such a unique character. For sure. And it's amazing that no one's really been able to capture that Gollum bit or even really like expand upon it. Right. There's ways I don't want to spoil anything in Joe Abercrombie's work, but there's just ways in which you can see him giving his own take on certain characters. I mean, I mean, I guess I could say without it really this being a spoiler that the way that Joe Abercrombie presents Baez is kind of a different take on the wizard archetype that Gandalf is basically the person That's fair. That yeah. all of this is based on. And I won't say in what ways Baez differs, but very much so in a way that's very clearly a subversion and a twist on something that Gandalf was that feels like it takes things in a different direction that's interesting kind of expands upon you know standing on the shoulders of giants type of thing but I don't see these places where people have really stood on Tolkien's shoulders and (laughs) been able to (laughs) see farther down the Gollum path yeah Gollum holds up so well Gollum holds up better than a lot of characters in this he's just so unique and the whole situation that they're that the hobbits are in with Gollum is an interesting one as well where they're like we need him he's our guide but he's also like basically like a feral animal at the same time so it's the end we can't really trust him and he might be treacherous and Sam um, doesn't trust him at all and Frodo like is more compassionate uh, so like the whole dynamic between the three of them is super interesting and then they have they're like obligated to protect him when they run into Faramir so it's like a lot of really interesting like he's got some innocence to him as well while also being the furthest thing from innocent it's like really he's such an interesting character he's got a lot going on and he's used in almost every conceivable way <laughs> he's portrayed in every way <laughs> as a human being could be portrayed he's like he's crazy but he's conniving and he has like quips and but he's also innocent but he's also plotting their deaths it's like really bizarre (laughs) yeah (laughs) i have no idea how 
Tolkien was able to conceive a character. Yeah, like, when you think Gollum. of like a professor in like the 40s and the 30s, like yeah. trying to write fiction, you don't, you you wouldn't think they'd come up with a character like Gollum, who's very <laughs> off the beaten path. <laughs> no, very much holds up, and as someone who'd only watched the movies and now was reading these books for the first time to see how clear and distinct Gollum's voice is in the books and how much <laughs> it was pretty much just taken directly by Andy Serkis, like you were saying, yeah. Charles. Uh, uh, I think that we were talking about in our last episode how Gimli, for example, in the books, maybe doesn't seem to have as much voice or charisma as we felt like the actor, what, what's his name? Oh, Charles, I can't you know? say Sorry, it. I do know, it, but I don't know how to pronounce it. It's like, um, I'm going to butcher it. Uh, let me just e- Google Either it. way. <laughs> I mean, I'll let you Google if you want to. It's like to, Reese Jarvis. Or it's like Reese something. Um, anyway, he's a great actor in that. John uh, Reese he, Davis, R-H-Y-S, Davies, John Reese Davies. John, if you're listening, sorry if uh, we're mispronouncing. But He's a fantastic actor. You do an awesome job, John, <laughs> portraying Gimli. And you bring so much flavor to that role. And I feel like reading the books after watching the movies, where Gimli was one of my favorite characters, I was kind of like, eh, took some of the fun out of what he was. Right. And... Or just like it didn't seem to have the same amount of fun. And Gollum, there was no part of me that was like, oh, Gollum just isn't the same uh, without seeing Andy Serkis. Yeah, the book character lives up to the movie character more Mm -hmm. in more ways than many of the other cast members have lived up to their characters. I mean, they all do fantastic jobs and some do better than the book version, but that was one where it's like, too amazing (laughs) like the book version and the movie version are just both like top tier portrayals of a very unique character they just nailed it Um, what did you what did you think of um because in the movies what happens is Gollum like kind of frames sam as like having eaten all their food and then frodo like (laughs) takes Gollum's side and abandons sam whereas in the books um Frodo and Sam stay together till the end when they just get separated because Frodo runs. He's so excited to be out in the exit. He just like sprints off and they get separated. What did I think about that? The different, like the choice, the creative choice. And like, does one succeed more than the other kind of a thing? Because it is a really deliberate departure from what Tolkien wrote to, to be like, and then Frodo loses trust in Sam and decides to walk away. It's like that. Interesting. I don't think that was necessarily an improvement. I think the books probably do this a little bit stronger. The thing about the movies I really liked is I felt like they they captured that moment where Gollum is saved by uh, um by Frodo at the Forbidden Pool. Yeah. In a way that felt like it 
drilled home why Gollum would then betray them and uh, this whole thing. I feel like the movie set that up really well, but the decision to then have it be that Frodo loses trust in Sam and stuff like that, I I could take or leave that bit. And I like this, I like the bromance between Frodo and Sam, I think, better in the books than I do in the movies. Though they do it well in the movies. I think it's a little bit stronger because you don't have these weird moments where it's like, wait, this one small thing that Sam did. <laughs> Sam made all the you. Lambus bread. <laughs> Even though he denies yeah. it, I don't believe him and I'm I leaving now. The, yeah. I believe the corrupted gray thing that keeps talking to itself instead of Sam, my like lifelong friend or servant or whatever is going on there. Uh, that's still kind of creeping me out the whole master thing yeah i think that's just like old school yeah the idea that like he was his gardener so frodo's the master you know it's like something that doesn't really fly in a modern americana but in ye old england i'm sure it's sure it's not a huge deal and sam doesn't seem bothered by it at all and <laughs> no. um, not language that i would use but it it and it is unusual to read that. It's also unusual to read things like, you know, Frodo, you rested his head in his lap and they were like holding hands and stuff. You're like, yeah, it's a different take on on this idea of their relationship. Like today, people would be like, are they a couple? But I think it was very much written in like a, like we're at the edge of the world and we're the only two good things just in this whole land and we're just holding on to each other, you know, so very interesting yeah i think it's a very it's a very this isn't gonna be a huge take that no one's ever said (laughs) before but i think that the sam frodo relationship does a good job of portraying just that really genuine loyal friendship in a way that maybe is being subverted so much at this point Right. It's such like an honest, vulnerable moment, you know, because it's not like they're always like that. This was just one moment that Tolkien wrote in towards the end of this book where they were like, um, it was almost, they were just kind of like embracing each other more as they were approaching the, um, the gates of Mordor, right? So it's just was really interesting. I, I always envisioned what it would be like if you were like sharing a foxhole with someone in World War One, you know, and you thought you could die at any moment, kind of a thing. And it's just like you have that bond between you. It's not romantic, but it is love. And it's just something that Lord of the Rings, that that relationship between Sam and Frodo that I've always really liked that I you don't really get a lot of in more modern stuff is this idea of this kind of this vulnerable love between these two people that's not necessarily romantic or subverted in any way it's just like two people at the edge of the world so like overwhelmed with grief and impending doom like they think they're literally they think they're going to die you know they they don't see how they could possibly survive this they're not even worried about getting fresh water anymore they're like eh well we'll worry about that if we ever make it like through the gates. Like like if we run out of water, that's the least of our problems right now. So those kinds of moments, you're like, whoa, they are in, in the thick of it. So those moments I thought were really touching and, and fresh for me, but I imagine it would be very common in like 
fields of war or something. Well, the closest that we have ever gone to that, Charles, is <laughs> <laughs> probably when we climb Mount Doom. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, hey, there's some there's something we can relate to there. And I can totally the, I can totally relate the setting. to Sam and Frodo's uh plight. You know, instead of Lambus we had Cranberry Delish. <laughs> and instead of Gollum we had Derek. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> dude what a great that that trip was more um, metaphorical than i thought <laughs> yeah you know we visit middle earth we climb mount doom and <laughs> we are we're basically well who's sam and who's frodo then oh that's a good question um uh it could go either way, honestly. You know, some days I feel like the Frodo, other days I feel like the Sam. In that situation, seeing as I was the one that came I closest like to death, Frodo. I would be the Frodo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All we know for sure is that Derek was gone. You were like, I don't trust this Derek guy. I don't know why he had to come with us. <laughs> I was always saying. <laughs> it could have just been the two of us, you know. <laughs> uh, <sighs> it's funny. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a plug, I guess. If if you want to hear us self-indulgently talk more about our trip to to New Zealand and to see the Middle Earth stuff, then we will be releasing... That's our... coming out in a few days, actually. So mm. that Mount Doom trip one is the one, the next episode after this one. So this is a Sunday episode, and that's a Wednesday. Oh. Yep. Wow. Our first one oh. came out last Wednesday. You're right about that, Charles. Yeah, I'm right our, really, well, Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. You are the dachshund of the... <laughs> Thank you. I mean, we did plan Caribbean. it that way, right? That was the whole point of these things. For sure, yeah. I just... You know, as the as the Kelsier of the two of us here, <laughs> you know... You're just happy it all born. worked out at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just got to be the face of this thing, and I'm glad that you're there to make sure that... <laughs> all this stuff is actually being released yeah no worries oh man there's so much more to talk about here um one of the other characters that i really liked i'd say after Treebeard and Gollum, um the, another character that for me had a really strong presence in this book was faramir i'm a, yeah. i'm a big faramir fan and i'd say he would be home in any modern fantasy story I felt like Faramir in the books was one of the biggest improvements over the movies, I guess. It's hard to use the word improvement uh, about something that came before. Yeah. One of the <laughs> things that sticks out as substantially better than in the movies, I feel like. I, I don't know. We had a From lot more time seen. with Faramir. Those conversations between Frodo and Faramir and like the interrogation almost. It was a conversation where Faramir was basically testing like how much does like is Frodo for real or is he some sort of evil? Like what does he know? How much information can I get out of him? And Frodo's like, I can't tell him about the ring because it's too tempting. So they have this back and forth um, trying to with hold information and only give out as much information so that they can trust each other and Faramir's approach to it is is so interesting and so fresh after reading a lot of the Lord of the Rings series up to this point like every character is very like virtuistic and almost kind of like 
doesn't even matter who else is in the room. They'll just say something and it will be so right and so true. And, and <laughs> Faramir's one where he's like, yeah, you know, my dad would probably want me to take this. And I know Boromir wanted it, but, you know, I got to stay true to the logical thing to do. And there was a good line when they were departing where I th- it was either Sam or something where he was like, you know, um, oh, some people are more like uh, elves or whatever, but you're more like a wizard. <laughs> because of the way he was the way he had his critical mind on and he made an unpopular choice but he knew it was the right thing to do just objectively and i don't think that had enough time to play out in the movies and in the movies he just seems like a a lower like a worse boromir oh, that's literally very much a what sad i was going child. to say charles yeah. <laughs> i was literally going to say worse boromir is my memory of faramir from the movies and i'm looking at a picture right now on google images of i i don't know the actor who played faramir <laughs> we're gonna go but... through this again <laughs> <laughs> i mean i actually don't know the guy's name for this one david Wenham. Wenham. sure and he's next to sean b in this picture and they made his hairstyle, his facial hair, all this stuff basically like exactly the same as Boromir. And I don't know, there's just something about the way that Sean Bean's kind of holding himself that makes him look so much more badass yeah. and cooler. Yeah, there's a funny gif in, uh, that you can... That was like one of the extended scenes in the movies where um, Denethor, their dad, is like he's just having this like dream vision of Boromir and he's all smiley and happy. And then all of a sudden like Faramir fades in and Boromir fades out and he has like this shocked, disgusted, disappointed look <laughs> on his face. It's so funny. It's just... Yeah, it's a weird route that they went. In, <laughs> I think it was just like economy of with... how much time can we develop this character versus other characters. I'm glad we got to see the version of him in the books because he comes off in a lot of ways as a more level-headed or like with more, I guess, self-restraint version of Boromir right. in the books. Exactly. And it's like, oh, that's so cool to see a person representing a, the, the humans in this who gets to be this pragmatic but restrained voice right and besides the word of it and that's what made him so interesting this book is so full of these epic characters and this is like i'm the second born i'm not like the grandiose hero and and there's more than just being like noble and true there's like well you have to be kind of realistic about these things right you have to be like pragmatic and like as the great Logan Nine Fingers said, yeah, exactly. And every Kelsier needs a dachshund, you know. So he, he <laughs> and Faramir is very much that like he's not charismatic enough to be Boromir, but he is certainly pragmatic enough to be a good leader. It's just a different take on it, and that's what made Faramir so interesting. And all those scenes where they're together was were so much fun for me to read. Agreed. 
the FTF podcast is very pro Faramir. We are pro Faramir. We're pro Gollum. We're on the fence about Treebeard. I wish we were more pro Treebeard than <laughs> we split. are, but we have to, you know, we can't agree on everything. <laughs> um, yeah. But let's talk some more about the first half of this book because the book splits itself very clearly. I mean, Tolkien wrote six books and then they got grouped into, you know, three books so in the two towers we have two separate books and they were originally going to be called let's see if i have it in my notes here yes so it was supposed one was supposed to be called the treason of isengard and the other one was the ring goes east uh, was the name of the other one and then tolkien even has gone on the record of being like as finding a title as that would come as close as possible to connecting these two super different books um, we we chose the two towers, and even then he's like, well, there's like six different towers in this in these books, so it's like <laughs> it's not clear where which two they are. Um, although Tolkien does go later on the record to say the two, it's Isengard, and then it's um, Critith, uh, Critith Minas Morgul, I should say Minas Morgul, the one that the um, <laughs> the lead ring wraith. Like comes out of that. Frodo and Sam are watching that army march towards Gondor. That's that tower. So those are the two towers, basically. Gotcha. Yeah, they split up. There's, there's the, is the treason of Isengard spelt like tree beard? T R E E space S O N. That would be epic. I assume it was named for the amount of time spent with the. With the ants. <laughs> I love the ants, man. In the movies, too. They have a great line in the movies that I thought was in the books, but it isn't, where it's like, I always loved going south. Feels like going downhill. That idea. It's like <laughs> such like a, tr- a thought a tree would have, you know? Where it's just like, um, don't be so hasty. <laughs> I just love that idea. <laughs> and then the fact that they just go to war <laughs> and, and throw, overthrow Saruman. I love that scene where, you know, the, the trio, right? Um, Aragon... Legolas Gimli they are searching for Merry and Pippin and they are they do this really I really like the way this series kicks off where you know Boromir dies Frodo's gone and they're just like the fellowship has failed all we can do now is try and save who we can which was Merry and Pippin which I thought was kind of a noble thing to do and they go on that epic long run over days which is a another cool thing that happens in these books <laughs> they, the first time they see them they're walking up with gandalf and they're like they're smoking on like the steps of yeah. isengard being like oh hi guys <laughs> that that was one of the better scenes in this thing i think <laughs> yeah it's like you want some... it's described in a way where it's like they saw two like figures yeah. <laughs> lying down and then gimli's like you are here we find you here smoking yep. and eating <laughs> it's just <laughs> It was one of the few moments of genuine like charm and humor that these books kind of allowed, which I thought were so good. I, I love those ones. In the movies too, they're really fun too. Where it's like we we, sure. we ran for days, we thought you were dead, <laughs> and here we find you. <laughs> this smoking old Toby, funny. and of course they're being like kind of cheeky that whole time. This is very fun. <laughs> it's interesting that. What Tolkien wanted to do was split things up kind of the way that George split up uh, <laughs> characters into different books with 
parallel yeah, timelines. That's true. Going on. Very Georgian. So Tolkien was probably like. <laughs> it's funny how like, he keeps right, saying I'll... like, "Oh, it's a very George like of him." Meanwhile, he wrote yeah. these books <laughs> forty years before <laughs> George. <laughs> true. I guess it's just funny to think. It's similar to what George would it's like. Oh, what an interesting do. take apart, uh, that was different from the movies. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we, you got to step back. And be like, dude, this guy. There was nothing, and then there was this. Kind of what it feels like for in terms of modern fantasy. It's like, look, this is what before this we had fairy tales and folklore and stuff. Um, well, I was trying to say that it's. Uh, <laughs> He was probably pitching it like, all right, we'll get the, we'll get Gimli and Gandalf and we'll get Legolas in this one. Make sure to get a lot of Treebeard time. And then the other one is, it's mostly Bombadil, but. (laughs) I can't believe you're comparing anything that happens in this to Bombadil. (laughs) Bombadil is so extreme. (laughs) at least Treebeard no, I, went on to fight Saruman. And, like, <laughs> there's also... I'm probably going to get heat for this, huh? <laughs> if I go too far. There's, there was also a pitched book seven that was exclusively Shelob. Um, Are you serious? <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but it is funny when they... It's very, like, old school fantasy. I'm not even criticizing it. I just think it's, like interesting to look back on where Sam basically defeats Shelob and I I did enjoy getting kind of more background on that character so that you get to yeah Tolkien did a great job of weaving in explaining who Shelob is while also keeping that scene mysterious and scary it's like really well done way to explain a new character while also keeping the progress of the horror of not knowing what's happening like fantastic extremely well done and my memory of what that was adapted to be like in the movies is just like okay now a spider thing's attacking them (laughs) (laughs) okay i guess this is happening now maybe maybe there's more than that but that's just my memory it also gives mad props to sam which the movie doesn't do as much it's like and then for the first time in its immortal life it was wounded (laughs) and then the orcs are like there's some super strong warrior about here that was able to probably an elf like some super strong elf warrior (laughs) probably we gotta leave before he gets here (laughs) yeah it's just sam gardener extraordinaire (laughs) sam's really growing into his own here Yeah, no, there's <laughs> there's an epicness, I don't know if that's a word, to the way that the fight scene with Shelob is written that Truly. is really cool. Just the, the description of Sam, it's like Sam charged with uh, like more, I don't know if it was like anger or whatever, right. but it's like more force than... Like anyone in the world is kind of the way it was described. It, it is more old like, school. Instead of like getting the blow by blow, which Tolkien never does, yeah. like the Battle of Helm's Deep was not a blow by blow thing. And neither not was this. All. It's very much he's focusing more on like overcoming these emotional odds and the change in your character and what you focused on, you know? It makes it's it, it gives so... it like an epic old school vibe to it and the language of it is so intense like the words he chooses are very intense 
definitely. And it's cool seeing Sam to wound, I guess, Shelob, and to feel like, holy crap, when it happens. And I didn't necessarily feel that when I watched the movie, where I was just like, okay, like, spiders attacking, like, dealing with this now. So that that's pretty Oh, here's a quote. Cool. But almost before she, being Shelob, was aware that a fury was upon her greater than any she had known yes. in countless years, the shining sword bit upon her foot and shore away the claw. And then there's one, no onslaught more fierce was ever seen in the savage world of beasts or some desperate small creature armed with little teeth alone will spring upon a tower of horn and hide that stands above its fallen mate. Which it's That's like, exactly what I was referring to. Reading yeah. those lines, you're like, whoa, what is happening right now? <laughs> it's so much better than like, and bones were crunching, and he swung his sword and it met purchase on a, on the, you know, on the exposed armor, which is also cool. Different but strokes for different folks. True. Um, this brought me all back to like Helm's Deep, which was my favorite. I mean, um, the Mines of Moria in the first book, which was my favorite scene. And this... Shelob's Lair is another one of my favorite scenes. Tolkien writes some great, almost horror to it. I just thought both both um, the Minds of Moria and this, just these scenes really came alive. Tolkien, a guy who doesn't write that much action when he gets into it, it's super good. Uh, it's, I was like, you could make a whole book where just this crazy stuff happening to people, but he's very restrained. And when he has those moments of like here's something super intense going down. It's interesting to see the contrast and the willingness to like, contrast from this, where things kind of started to where we're at now with the modern fantasy, more blow-by-blow blow fight scenes. Right. And just these moments like after Sam wounds Shelob, where there's the lines that, Tolkien writes something like, but whether she like restored herself and then went on to do more bad stuff, well, this tale isn't about that. <laughs> it's like, yep. And most people, if the tale wasn't about it, <laughs> in modern fantasy would not have yeah. <laughs> wrote that the tale isn't about it. They'd just keep moving. Right. But it, it, I don't know. There's charm to Yeah, there's something that. about those like old school things where it's a very much a fairy tale. It's like, and then they went on to whatever. And but it's like, but not our not our thing, right? It's like this character did went on to do other stuff. Maybe who knows? So <laughs> no, I love. I Shelob was one of my top scenes. Uh, that whole Shelob's lair chapter. It's right at the end too. And then the way this book ends where it's just like Sam finds out Frodo's alive. Like I can't imagine like reading like this book just came out <laughs> and you're reading that. You're like, Frodo's dead? Whoa. And it's like Frodo's alive and he's captured by orcs. And then the book ends. It's like, well, guess I'm waiting till next year to find out like how this how whole thing How far apart ends. were these published? I think they were published a year apart, I want to say it. But I'm honestly- but he like wrote them all and then they just um they just the question was how they were gonna you know bind them together and release them very abercrombie of him yeah <laughs> to throw back yeah. to, <laughs> you know he must have been drawing from his influences <laughs> like joe abercrombie who yeah. also writes all yeah it's very abercrombian of him he has a lot yeah. of georgisms <laughs> and abercrombieisms <laughs> in him <laughs> 
Yeah. It's, you know, you got to draw from the greats. Yeah. And it's amazing that he's doing all the things that these current authors are doing, you know? <laughs> For sure. No, it's <laughs> it's funny because some of these things that Tolkien was doing back then, I think people moved away from and then start to realize, hey, maybe you know, it is what? a good idea. I had idea another funny to... thought when I finished this book. I was like, wow, this is very much like Empire Strikes Back. This is like very Empire of this <laughs> trilogy. And I was like, wait, this came it out is. like 20 years before Empire. <laughs> yeah. This idea of like the middle chapter being the one that ends in this defeatist style where kind of like empire strikes back where it's like spoiler alert to anyone that hasn't seen empire strikes back where he loses the duel to um darth vader and loses a hand and han solo gets frozen and then it just ends and it's like a downer that's very much what's happened here it's like frodo's being taken away by orcs he's incapacitated and sam is all by himself has nobody and that's just how this ends and it's such a crazy way to go out it, it it's I don't know, it's what makes these so epic and so like standing the test of time and how so many other works of fiction have built on that that pacing of it and the story structure i mean tolkien didn't even intend to make it a trilogy and yet it's still wove into this like beautiful story pattern that a lot of people when they're publishing or making movies now it's like even like avengers like the avengers um infinity war where it ended and it was like mm-hmm. disastrous oh spoilers for avengers if you haven't seen avengers infinity war um but that had an ending very much like empire and very much like two towers you know and then you have the final one where it's like what kind of book is it where all the <laughs> main characters actually lose, but you have, you do have those moments and that's what modern, you know, modern fantasy spins that a little bit, but it's interesting to think that there could be people out there who, because they are listening to the tiny friends talking fantasy podcast ha- and haven't, could you, you imagine know, if I spoiled star Wars or, <laughs> I know. or infinity war with the someone well, I'm just thinking of like, I don't want to call anyone out. We're thankful for any listeners and we're honored if you got around to listening to this episode of the FDF podcast before getting around to Avengers Infinity War or getting around to (laughs) Empire Strikes Back from (laughs) Star Wars. We are surprised though. Yeah, Yeah, we are surprised, but we are very grateful. And Yeah. yeah, I mean, what a great... What a great like middle story to a great trilogy, honestly. I I I like this book a lot more than The Fellowship. For me, The Fellowship, especially in the beginning, dragged so heavily. And while well, you could say there's moments in these that felt kind of draggy in terms of like going into description and stuff, it has some great action pieces and it it moves the story in a lot less words and it I don't know. It just to me, it's it's building up. Like the stakes are so much higher now. The like the, the idea of Shelob's lair and and Faramir and Treebeard. Like these are all characters that I really loved, and um, just a great great piece of fiction. And it's like in one hundred and fifty thousand words, no less. I mean, Game of Thrones was almost twice that amount. So it's 
crazy to think how influential that's just that's the first book yeah just the first a, book a was 250,000 uh 298,000 words was according to the internet whereas um the two towers was 156,000 so just under double um fellowship of the ring was 187,000 I, I feel like if you took out the bombadil stuff though you'd be back at around 150,000 words <laughs> yeah but why would you do that Charles? You got to give something to the book fans, you know. <laughs> There's really nothing for book fans in in Two Towers, you know. A lot of it was adapted Shelob. to movie. Like really caring about Shelob, I feel like would be. The yeah, book but Shelob's in the. But to know exactly but who does, Shelob yeah. is, you know, like how epic of a creature Shelob is, like the feat exactly. of defeating Shelob, is a huge deal that you have no idea how huge of a deal it is for Sam. In the movies, where it's like, oh, Sam beat a, a big spider. spider thing. But it's like, Sam beat Sheila, bro. Like, <laughs> he beat. Exactly. Like, the personification of evil and, like, the second most evil thing in the land besides, like, uh, Sauron. You know, Sauron's cat, basically, was, I think, how he said it, how they said it in the description. So it's like, dude, it's serious stuff. Like, a, something that never, like, was stabbed before <laughs> just got stabbed so it's like you know it's one of those that's you know this book sam is so epic in that way and movie sam did all you the same stuff you just don't know it you know what's interesting for <laughs> me reading this book too is that there are there are a lot of meta moments almost that you wouldn't expect from tolkien <laughs> like, like that they so there's moments where Frodo and Sam are talking about like the point oh, in the story yes, that yes, they're at. Yes, yes, that's a great moment where he's like, "I want to hear the story of Mister Frodo or whatever," and it's like, "What about that Sam guy?" <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. they don't know what that they're in the story when they're in it, you know. So, no, those are yeah, but Tolkien knows he's. Yeah. writing a story <laughs> yeah well i think i mean unless he's so lost in it but he yeah i don't know he was writing i mean he had meta things i mean the the hobbit is basically supposed to be written by bilbo right yeah basically like and then he's writing his story in this in the lord of the rings series i mean tolkien was meta before it was cool he was. And, um, you know, I think people have gone on to be like, how can we take that idea of talking about story structure and the point we're at in the story and take my story, but break those rules and expectations and things? How extreme can we go with it? Yeah. Well, but and there's a great Tolkien quote in there too. ahead of his time. I yeah, I did enjoy that conversation besides the the interest I was getting out of people in a story talking about their story being told in something as uh as old as this. Yeah, uh, and there's a point where it's like I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into was something yeah. that Sam asked to Frodo and Frodo's like I wonder but I don't know and that's the way of a real tale. <laughs> it's like <laughs> that whole conversation where it's uh you know, I bet Tolkien was a uh, was a bit of a silly guy in real life. You know, he had to have been. <laughs> I would guess that he was. It must have been fun. 
Well, Charles, maybe the one thing we didn't talk about is Helm's Deep. That needs that maybe we yeah should. I, I mean, know. in the movies, it's epic, and even like when the uh, season eight of Game of Thrones came out, they're like, "This battle will be longer and more epic than Helm's Deep." <laughs> it's like uh, that's up for debate, but in the books, it was darker. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Uh, <laughs> I mean, looking at Helm's Deep, where it's like super blue and bright, like it's in a studio, but it's, it's Helm's Deep stands on its own in terms of movie battles. But um, and to compare it to Helm's Deep was such a bold move that did not pay off. But anyway, um, in the books, it does kind of they do that thing that you were asking about in the last book of like doing the body count thing between Gimli and Legolas which um, Mm -hmm. was fun, and that's a fun thing that came out in the movies, but it was really breezed over, and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier of, like, Tolkien doesn't really write action. Um, Like, it's only, this book is only 150,000 words long, and so many things happen. I just think his economy of words, it's like this huge epic battle that was a third of the movie is a couple pages in my story. I'm spending more time describing other things. Well, I'm sure it was more than a couple pages, but it was a chapter, but it wasn't like the percentage dedicated to like the battle in the movies versus dedicated to pages of the book is they're way skewed from each other. It's a big difference. And I was, I was pretty surprised Mm -hmm. by that. I was amazed that Peter Jackson and, everyone else who worked on that were able to see what they made of Helm's Deep in what Tolkien wrote. So That's true. pretty incredible that they carved that so true. out of that whole thing. I feel like, yeah, the, the Gimli and Legolas stuff, which is so fun and action-packed in the, in the movies, in the book, it's almost just like they'll see each other every once in a while and be like, hey, dude, where are you at? <laughs> it's like, I'm at 42. What about you? He's like, uh, 39. It's like, oh, cool. I'll see you later. <laughs> well, in the movies, it was like, just I just shot one, and I'll 41. say I'm at 42. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. And, I mean, those, those guys that made the movie, they were brilliant editors. <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> they thought to expand what they thought to expand and condense or remove the things they thought to condense and remove. But they... They did a job that I would have never thought possible. And I, I would have never considered making Helm's Deep like a huge deal as it was made in the movies. But it's such a fantastic moment that made those movies as successful as they were. And, um, I mean, Tolkien, you, you just, Tolkien did what he was good at and Peter Jackson and his team did what they were good at. They wanted to flex more of their special effects and they wanted to do a battle and... Helm's Deep was a great opportunity for that. And it is that dramatic moment where at the 11th hour, Gandalf arrives with the sunrise and they come down and, and King Theoden's like, we'll ride together. <laughs> like, cause it's like, there, there's a point where they're just totally overrun and they're barricaded the doors and they realize like, what are we going to do? Wait for them to bust in. Why don't we just ride out there in like a blaze of glory? And uh, it just happened to be <laughs> that, that 11th hour moment of, Oh, the Gandalf is here and saved us all. So, which you can get away with in Lord of the Rings. It's not considered a trope at this point. 
It's kind of the scene that's like Gandalf has returned and he's back and he's more powerful, which has become ultra mega trope that that Gandalf character has been done a thousand million times. The idea of being of returning, like thinking that they died and coming back. Very and even before Gandalf, that was done in fiction, but like Gandalf was that modern fantasy example of it that was super popular. So yeah, many. set the stage for a lot of resurrections that have frustrated many, many people. Who <laughs> so many people like shouting trope away. at others. So many Tolkien clones that we've had to um, wade through since. <laughs> yeah, well, resurrection's an interesting topic. I'd almost think that could be a fun thing for us to to talk about yeah. more. And <laughs> yeah, like a, a character series segment. of like best and worst resurrected characters. Yeah. It's like, here's a character that had no business being resurrected. <laughs> I've read some. <laughs> I mean, because it has the chance to be this really epic moment, but most of the time I feel like it just takes away stakes from... Yeah, the, I mean, it takes a lot of guts to kill the main character or uh, a main character like to kill Gandalf was like a huge deal. And then to bring him back somehow managed to be pulled off as a huge deal as well. It's not an easy thing to do. (laughs) It's not easy. Especially now that Gandalf exists. Yeah. Most of the time you're going to probably fall flat. My general blanket statement recommendation for resurrection would be uh, don't, do it but i I mean it can definitely be done well that's also like a modern fantasy approach to things Mm -hmm. would be like to hope that they would get resurrected it's like no dude they're dead like spoilers i'm not even gonna say but we reviewed a series a while back that had this resurrection trope in it and it was subverted in a good way dylan i'm hoping you're remembering what i'm talking about yeah, it's not a huge... It's not huge, but it was well, yeah, a main character went out in a blaze of glory. Yes. And there was a play on the resurrection trope, you know? For sure. And I don't and know I how appropriate that would be to bring up in, no. in this, but... No, but it is moments like Gandalf's resurrection that set the stage and we haven't covered that many books by the way so if you look back and you've read the books you probably know which one we're talking about too um yeah but it's not enough that I spoiled anything for anybody (laughs) no 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 and yeah it's resurrections like this that set the stage for (laughs) for being able to subvert it like that and the stage has been thoroughly set thoroughly for And for Return of the King, too. Now That's that fun. we're closing out two towers. Here. Closing it out. Man, I, these series, you you get a sense of it. Oh, there goes Siri. <laughs> you, you get a sense. That's the, like the third or fourth time now. We got to just do a running count um, <laughs> when my Siri gets turned on. Charles, uh, <laughs> since you're the dachshund over here, You'll know whether or not Friends Pitching Fantasy has aired by now, the last one, um, right? So there's one that we recorded that's coming out um, after Mistborn. So yes, there's this one. The only other one we've recorded will have aired by now. You mean after Kingkiller? Yeah, Kingkiller. Okay. So 
you'll know already, friends of friends, that's you, the listeners, uh, <laughs> that we will be covering Witcher next. And yes. I'm very excited for all the moments where Charles has to discuss Princess Siri. Oh, Lord. And his phone. <laughs> I'm just going to turn out. my phone off. Or maybe I'll keep it on and we'll do a running <laughs> a running count. That would be a funny running count. <laughs> But and that would also be interesting to compare it and see just like the character Geralt versus a character like in Aragon like or a Faramir yeah. type would compare. Yeah, I mean, I'm very excited <laughs> to get into Witcher. I know but we're before a we do that, here. we have the grand finale of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Who knows where it's going to go? <laughs> Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Frodo's been taken away by orcs, dude, into Mount Doom. Not into Mount Doom, into um, Mordor. So he is in some serious trouble, and Sam is in despair. Well said, Charles. So I think... we eagerly await... We eagerly await. I mean, this is the climactic, poetic, epic finale to one of the most influential works of fiction ever published in the modern times. And you can expect one of the most influential episodes of a podcast ever. We're going to have opinions on it. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have thoughts, ideas, opinions, discussions. You're not going to want to miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Is there anything else, Dylan, you would want to say about the two towers before we go forward into our uh, Return of the King buddy read? No, I think we've said it all. I mean, there's so many other moments that happened in these books, but I'm happy with where we are. And with that, I think I'm just going to get our outro queued up here. So thank you, everyone, for listening to yet another exciting, epic episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles. With me, as always, is my friend Dylan. That's me. That's him right there. Do us a favor. Check us out. Check out our other episodes. Visit us on social media. Send us an email. Just Google Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast and click all those links rate five stars share with your friends all that other stuff let's go team friends friends talking fantasy team ftfers out there hands in hands in ftf podcast on three turtles all right ftf on three one two three friends talking ftf Should we try that again? Oh. <laughs> uh, nah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I feel like we might not have time. <laughs> you, you guys got <laughs> it, man. With the outro. Is the outro going to run out? Uh, we're, we're almost halfway. Ah. <laughs> uh. But, oh, that's the part I normally like to end on. So thank you, everybody. Go forth and conquer, friends. <laughs>